I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. So tonight we have Brad Todd with us. Brad Todd earned his first paycheck as a writer at the age of 14, and he has not shut up since, so he says. A refugee from journalism, Brad managed winning campaigns and led a state party before stumbling onto his future as an ad maker. He has worked for seven senators, three governors, and two dozen congressmen. Away from politics, Brad founded Coach to cure a graduate of Rhodes College and the University of Missouri School of Journalism. Todd lives in Alexandria, Virginia now. Todd is <laughs> Todd is the co-author with Selena Zito of The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition Reshaping American Politics to be published by Crown Forum Books in May of 2018. So here's your question for the evening, and what I did not mention, which he didn't even ever put in his bio, is he has been a contributor to CNN, he's been a contributor to Politico, um, to Meet the Press, I've, heard, I've never seen him on Meet the Press, but I've heard about him being on Meet the Press. And, uh, and so here's your question this evening. What share of the country lives between I-5 and I-95? Talk about that at your tables. All right, we can go ahead and get started here, although starting a pub talk without my beer in hand is seemingly risky. Um, one thing, Michelle, uh, ha- it was not in that little sort of bio she has, but I'm a parishioner at Aldersgate and have been uh, since 2010 with our family, and we were we came to some of Kingstown, some original, very first original meetings several years ago, and so it's, it's great to see all the, the success and, uh, and uh, thriving uh, place shape that, that, that things are in. Congratulations to all you for all your hard work on on doing that. Uh, I'm a native of East Tennessee, and so, uh, which is the only place I've found where people speak with absolutely no accent. Um, and I, I, uh, I, I grew up in a very, in a very blue collar environment. My, my, none of my grandparents finished high school. Most, two of them didn't even darken the door. Uh, when I was born, we, I came home, we took a trailer. Uh, my parents worked their way through college and gave us a great education, but, but that, that is definitely the environment from which I come. And I, I have sort of, um, I spent my whole life waiting on the populist coalition to come around. Uh, I have to tell you that I never imagined 
Donald Trump would be the person that would unite a populist coalition. He, he, he was my 16th choice out of 16 in the Republican primary. Um, and when Selena Zito, this is the book, and I'm going to plug it about 12 times so you all buy it tonight, because uh, pre-orders, they're on pre-order now on Amazon, Great Revolt, Great Revolt, Selena Zito and Brad Todd. Um, it, uh, okay, great. So later we're going to talk more about the Great Revolt with Brad Todd and Selena Zito, and, and it's how they fail in pre-order. Okay, I'm just checking. Um, Pre-orders do count toward your first week of New York Times bestseller uh, status. And I, I've learned a lot about the publishing business I never knew since we started writing this book. And it actually, I noticed in my Facebook memories today, this is the one-year anniversary of the day we sold the book. Uh, the pictures of Selena and I in New York a year ago when we went to pitch the book to publishing houses. So it's kind of a nice little anniversary for me. Uh, it's a first-time deal for me. And I, I didn't ever realize that a book is like a movie. They know on the first weekend how many books you're going to sell. They can, they can, there's an algorithm that can pretty much tell immediately after you've had a week, and particularly even one weekend, of how many books you sold, there's a pretty good predictor of what you're going to do. So therefore, all the hyping you do of your own book in a pre-order period, like right now when I might suggest you go to Amazon and buy The Great Revolt, the, that, that actually really does help us. Uh, so uh, anyway, but you know, you're, that's, that's enough promotion for this segment. We'll bring it back at 725. Um, <laughs> our next commercial break. So Selena is a journalist. She works, and I'm a journalist by training. I, 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 used, I got out of journalism because I felt like I wasn't going to ever change the world as a journalist. Um, Selena is a journalist. She lives in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, one, the other end of the Appalachian mountain chain from me. We've worked together on stories for years, and Selena is famous for being the only, CNN's Jake Tapper called her the only reporter who got the election right, uh, which makes her different from me because, and I always give this full disclosure, I called the election wrong like 85 times. Uh, and I'm a political expert, allegedly. You know, at least I tell my clients I am. Um, uh, and so I, when I, I wrote, for example, an op-ed in Politico in the primary process called Wisconsin Waterloo, when I, a genius, said, quote, Trump can barely handle losing Wisconsin's primary and he simply can't afford to get wiped out. Okay, that was 100% wrong. He did get wiped out, and he could afford it just fine. So I, I, I start out with that premise because I want to I sort of own up to the fact up front that this is a thing that, that almost all of us missed. And Selena, if she were here, she'd have to say, I didn't miss it, right? But, but the rest of us pretty much all missed it, even we people who do this the rest for their, for their whole life. Now, I will tell you, I had another op-ed that was just a little bit more prescient, which was the problem with Ted Cruz and bunny sex. Um, <laughs> And if you want me to come back at a separate time, we can talk about the problems with Ted Cruz and bunny sex. I don't know how I'm going to get theology to there, but we'll, we'll work at it. Um, so we tried to write a book about how everybody missed the election. That's what we sold a year ago today. Uh, in the end, that's not the book we wrote. Uh, we sold that book, but the book we wrote, I, I hope, leaves you at the end of it not saying, okay, well, that's how that happened. That's in the past. But a book about, is this happening elsewhere? Why? What's next? Um, and, and hopefully after you end that book, we don't answer all those questions, but hopefully those are the questions you're asking yourself by the time you get finished with the book, um, if, if you choose to read it after tonight's disaster of a performance. Um, the, um, so I'd like to talk a couple, start out with a little bit about the fact that I believe the election of the president is merely a manifestation of bigger things, right? No joke. But it's not what you think. It's not what you think. Uh, and the three bigger, the bigger things. And I will also say... He was the, the manifestation of bigger things was, is in spite of himself, which that's a caveat I don't have to put there. You know that as well. Um, so the three things I'd like to talk about that, that are manifestation of bigger things are, number one, 
the super zips, super zip codes. Number two, changing technology, or as we call it, the tyranny of the smartphone. Uh, and number three, the death of institutions. And I think that's will lead us into the second half where we can talk more about how does this impact the church and, is the ch- and we can postulate on that amongst ourselves. Um, the super zips is a notion that Charles Murray, the sociologist, anybody ever read Charles Murray's books? Yeah, Bell Curve, right? Uh, Coming Apart is a book he wrote in 2012, which I think if, if this topic at all interests you, after you read The Great Revolt and are left wanting, you need to go read Charles Murray, who's really smart, and will help you explain it for real. Um, Charles Murray's Coming Apart in 2012 could have predicted the election. Murray's postulation is that there, that, um, there, there's a gr- there are a group of zip codes in which we are getting a distilled concentration of America's best and brightest intellectually. He calls our higher education system the great cognitive sorting machine. Uh, and he, those, that cognitive sorting machine is not only taking upper middle class people, getting them great educations, but it's then introducing them to someone who has a great education from an upper middle class background. They, Mary, have children who are upper middle class people who get great educations. Uh, and before you know it, they settle in the same places where their college roommates settled. And then they settle in, their children settle where their college roommates settled. And capital, as it moves where the brains follow, we're establishing what he calls super zip codes. Uh, and they're, they're in New York and San Francisco and, and uh, Los Angeles and Washington, D.C. He puts a number on it. He, he derives his number from census data. I think that's far less important than the actual concept uh, of it. I deal in precincts. He deals in zip codes. It kind of works the same, same way. Um, and, and Murray's point is, I'd like to read a little bit from our book, just a second, since this is a book talk, um, just a, a short passage, and then, and then this to sort of get at his point, which is somewhat our point uh, of, of what's happening. Murray, uh, we say, the emerging populist conservative coalition is in no measure a resistant, no small measure of resistance to the mores and power of those big four geographic clusters and to the democratic message in the Obama era that was purely a purely distilled insistence on conformity to the values, societal norms, and priorities of that hyper-educated metropolitan class, a liberalism that seeks to spread cosmopolitan relativism to the masses instead of spreading economic equality was destined to leave a decisive slice of the electorate in search of a new home. It took an outsider of the conservative tent like Trump to throw out the welcome mat for them. Um, Murray's contention is, is, is simply that institutions in this fragmented society we live in, right, where every single one of us carries an individualized tool, we all consume the world differently, that in that fragmented world, because of the super zips, the content we are creating in our most mass engines and our largest institutions of society is conforming more and more and more. And that conformity has changed from the 1950s. From the 1950s, conformity was of the masses, right? Everyone drove the Ford, same five Ford cars, same five Chevrolet cars, same craftsman homes. Conformity was a thing of the masses. And in, and in, but in today's world, conformity is at the highest levels of our decision-making body and society. That's, that's Murray's, Murray's theory, uh, which... Obviously, we know everything in society, and a reaction has caused an equal and opposite reaction, correct? And so it took the institution of, it took an outsider like Donald Trump to smash the Republican Party. Uh, we, and that's, and we, it's in sequence. It's the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, and then, and then the mass media. And we, we personify that with both what happened with Jeb Bush. 
Jeb Bush is the Republican Party. It's the Republican establishment. He had virtually every Republican institution, institutional factor for him. Donald Trump spent the entire primary saying, I might bail. I might run as an independent. I might not go to that debate. I might not sign a loyalty pledge. He made very clear that he stood apart from the institution, which enabled him to not only attract new people into the process as he was getting the nomination, but lay the groundwork to get people in the general election who didn't like either party because he was so clearly anti-one party uh, in, in the election. In, in, in the form of Hillary Clinton, which she represented the Democratic uh, establishment just as equally as Jeb Bush did, hence the rise of Bernie. Right, the same disaffection that led Bernie Sanders. This is all new. We all understand this. That left that it powered powered uh, Donald Trump on the right, powered powered Bernie on the left. Same sort of sense. Now, why is that? How did we as a culture get to this spot where our biggest institutions in politics have zero credibility? Right? How did we get here to that place? Uh, and I think the answer very clearly is our smartphone. The the Richard Edelman, who has the fame the famed. Uh, a uh, PR firm by the same name uh, who consults with all major brands, he traces the polarization in society to 2006. Uh, and he, he has a variety of indicators, social indicators, which I won't get into here, that, that sort of point to when we began to be very hyper-polarized. Some people trace it back to 2001, but Murray Edelman points it at 2006 with the invention of the BlackBerry with a trackball and a color screen that at that point we all could individually navigate the web at every point of our daily life and go exactly to where we want. The iPhone was invented in January 2007. And so we then went to a world where we could curate our own news. Uh, I still pay to get two newspapers. I'm a former journalist. I can't seem to quit. Uh, I, I don't get them out of the driveway most days. I put them in, just pick them up and throw them in the back of my truck. But I do consume almost everything in those newspapers on my phone. Because I've figured out which columnists in the New York Times I like, which topics I like, which sections I like, and I subscribe to those, those, those topics on Twitter. The New York Times Science Desk I love. So I have the New York Times Science Desk on my Twitter feed. You know, I've curated the fact that, that my very favorite sports writers have their own Twitter feed. They post their stories there. I watch them. I use a product called Nuzzle. Anybody ever heard of Nuzzle? Nuzzle looks at the stuff you've looked at and says, hey, you're going to like this. These are some other things you'll like based on the stuff you've looked at this morning. So we use, I use artificial intelligence to even read my own mind, right? But it's not, it's not giving me things new. It's not broadening my horizon. It's reinforcing the biases I've shown already this morning with what I've looked at. And so this, the, the rise of the smartphone, according to Edelman, uh, is what does it. Today, four out of five people say they only read what they agree with. Now, that's what we admit to a stranger in a survey, Right? You know what the other 20% are? Liars. Right? Or they just, they're, they're, either that or it's vanity. Maybe, it's, maybe, it's, maybe that's what it is. So, uh, now that's how the smartphone has affected us. And it has affected journalists as well in a very different way. Uh, on the one hand, journalism is fragmented more than ever. Here I sit in Alexandria, Virginia. I have a sports writer I love in Lexington, Kentucky, John Clay. I read him every day. I never could have done that before the smartphone, right? So on the one hand, we are so much more fragmented than we ever were before, but the news business is more consolidated than it ever has been before uh, for two reasons. Number one, newsroom staffing has been tortured. Oh, bless you. Newsroom staffing has been eviscerated. Thank God I decided not to be a journalist because my peers from journalism school uh, 
are suddenly in midlife and being laid off or going freelance or there just are no jobs left, even for highly successful career journalists. Uh, to give you an example, the American Association of Editors and Publishers does a newsroom employment survey every year. And newsroom employment in America peaked in 1990 uh, at 56,900 people. By 2014, that number had dropped to 32,900 people. By 2016, they stopped doing the survey. Okay? So, it, because it was just too embarrassing to the industry to admit how much the declines happened. Now, meanwhile, the country, between 1990 and 2014, experienced double-digit growth, 20% growth. So the country's bigger, our journalism is smaller, and yet we all, the potential audience is unlimited. The potential audience is 300 million people for, for, for anyone who is, can publish a newspaper. Newspaper brands like the New Orleans Times, Picayune, Mobile Press, Register, don't even publish every day anymore. Citizen, city, large cities all over America left without a daily newspaper. The journalism is changing, and it has created a virtual newsroom. Uh, when I was in journalism, you could walk in the newsroom, and you knew everybody's biases, right? You knew... You knew your boss's biases, just like in your career, whatever that is. You know, your, you know everyone in the room's biases, from lunchroom chat or whatnot. So in the newsroom, we knew whose biases were what. And you knew how to argue and how to engage and how to debate. Should we cover this story? Is this a front-page story? What's the headline? Is this story more important than the other story? Can we wait? Should this go to Sunday? Is this merit a feature? Okay, that conversation now does not happen in a physical newsroom with people who know each other's biases. It happens on Twitter. When journalists look and see what everybody else is covering, what their peers are covering, what their competitors are covering. And by the way, they don't have time. They don't have time to cover it. I'm doing a race, in, a Senate race in Tennessee, I mean a governor's race in Tennessee this year. There are four serious candidates for governor. There's a Senate race, and that's on the Republican side, two on the Democrat side. A parallel Senate race uh, has three serious candidates. The, there are two open congressional seats, each with full fields. Covering all of these people are three political reporters. Three people. They'll never make it to any news. They'll, they'll, they'll never get there. They can't even read all the press releases. They're just outgunned. So that, the only recourse they have is for them, all three of them to look and see what the other two are covering. Right? That's the fastest way to decide, is this news or not? Hey, how do I not get beat? If I don't get beat on this story, I don't get fired if I don't get beat. Right? You don't get, you don't get a better job because you broke news. You get fired for not getting beat. Or don't get fired for not getting beat. So journalism is changing itself. And that is driving a bigger pack mentality. So what does that mean? Well, number one, it's also given journalists a forum to express their public their opinions personally, right? Which has uncovered a little bit more of their object, un, ob, wiped off their objectivity. Two, there, it's it's given us a lot more inexperienced journalists, right? The more you write a pack story that you covered off Twitter, the less experience you have in going out and actually finding out news of your own. Uh, num number three, the it is concentrating, technology is concentrating journalists where? Super Zips. Charles Murray's Super Zips. Publications in New York and Washington, L.A. and San Francisco, that's where journalists live now. Journalists who cover our Senate races and governor's races out in the states increasingly live here and cover it from afar. And they fly in and parachute in, spend a day, fly back out. It's no way to cover politics. So we end up with a much more, a journalism corps that's chasing each other covering it from way, way, way beyond the lines, beyond the front lines, uh, and conforming to, conforming to a certain worldview before they ever start. Uh, number three, and then I'm going to stop when we get to this, uh, through, go through this point and sort of open it up to some questions, um, the death of institutions. Um, and this, I think, will lead us into a discussion, hopefully, of where we are on some societal, non-political things. 
Uh, in conjunction with our book, we did a survey of all of, of Trump voters, a scientific survey of Trump voters in five states that flipped uh, the, the, in the Midwest. The, only six states flipped from Obama to Trump. Florida plus the Rust Belt. Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Iowa, Pennsylvania. That's who, that's who flipped. So our book focused on those five Rust Belt states. Uh, it would be startling to you, to, and you'll read it when you order Great Revolt on Amazon.com. Um, but it'll be startling to you that uh, of the number of counties that flipped in those, in, those smaller place, in, those, in those Rust Belt states, these are people who voted for Obama twice and then flipped and voted for Donald Trump. Uh, we, asked those, we asked in a scientific survey those folks, who do you trust more to do the right thing for the country? This is not in the election. This is, this is in August. Uh, do you trust the Republican Party? Do you trust or in Congress, the Democratic Party in Congress? Do you trust the leaders of large corporations? Do you trust leading news outlets? Or do you trust President Trump? Now, I'm going to ask this question. I want you to think in your own mind and put me your number. What do you think that number? Now, granted, most of these Trump voters are not people who are new to his cause. Only that much were new to his cause, right? Most people are regular Republicans in that coalition. What number do you think said, I trust Donald Trump over all those other people to do the right thing? 30%? 10%? Any other takers? 60%. 60%. How many people think trust was the trusted Republicans? Congressional Republicans, I'm going to tease the story. They're next. 10%? 40. 25. 25. Six was leaders of America's corporations. Four was Democrats in Congress. 2% were the leaders of the news media. Okay? 60, 25, 6, 4, 2. All right? So we really did smash more than one paradigm here. Uh, now, we also asked them, we said... Do you, perspectives of him, do you believe Donald Trump stands up for the interests of working people and against the powerful, powerful interests? Anybody want to throw out a number here? 80, 65, 86%, 86% say Donald Trump stands up for the interests of working people against the powerful. Okay, now we took Trump out of it. How many people, this is Republicans, this is Republicans, the capitalist party in America. How many people believe large corporations do not care if they hurt working people? If their decisions hurt working people. 72%. 72% of the, cap, the voters for the capitalist party's ticket said large corporations don't care if their decisions hurt working people. It is a very different and new coalition that distrusts the large media outlets. It distrusts large corporations. It distrusts large, large government. Centralized control of all three. That is a function, in my opinion, of Charles Murray's sort of concentrating of decision-making power in the super zips and a concentration of dissent by a, a, a changing nature of dissent. Oh, I was just, in terms of the statistics you were just saying, why do you think that the same people are not associating Trump with corporations because he represents a big corporation? Right. I have a great answer to that. Hold on. Uh, it is, the answer to that is, there is, a, there, is a, there is a belief that the system is rigged. Okay? The institutional system is rigged. Now, what do I mean the system is rigged, right? And by the way, Bernie's people think this too, right? That's where you get a lot of commonality here. We've got to distrust a real large centralized power, right? This, and we asked a question that said, um, the United States should make our own decisions on major issues and challenge other nations to follow our example, or the United States should follow the example of European nations on major issues and cooperate fully in multinational organizations like the United Nations. I promise I'm getting to your question. That split is 85 to 14, 85 to 14. Uh, there is a huge rejection of, of what I would call 
multilateralism. Uh, and I think that, that that was a key to Trump's appeal to people who didn't think he was wedded to big corporations. Because there is a belief, especially, we spend a lot of time in, in uh, uh, Lee County, Iowa, Kenosha, Wisconsin, places like that for the book. Uh, Lee County, Iowa is a place called Keokuk. Mark Twain spent his time there as a young adult. It's right on the Mississippi River, very old town. Um, the employers there include Siemens making windmills, DuPont making paints, Roquette, which is a French company making corn sweetener, uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad, uh, and um, a, a, a meat packing company that's owned by a Dutch conglomerate, and then a fertilizer that's controlled by an Egyptic, Egyptian Coptic Christian based in the Netherlands. So it, the employers are all multinational companies, right? And there's this sense of, oh, well, it's xenophobia, right? Trump's people all hate foreigners. No, they all, in Lee County, Iowa, they all work for foreigners. What they disdained was central decision-making. And so there is a, the whole notion that a Brussels bureaucrat's going to make a better decision. And there is this sense that the game is rigged, right? That, the, that multinational organizations, multinational corporations, they make decisions far away from here. They don't care if, they, if it hurts people. And they felt like that Trump, in standing up to multinational corporations, multinational trade deals, and the political apparatus of the Republican Party, they felt like he was enough of an outsider that he didn't know him. And, and I think in Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton, uh, you had two people who they felt like were completely integral to that sort of multilateral system. Um, one of our chapters at the end of the, at the back part of the book, when hopefully we're bringing it in for a landing, uh, is called Localism, Not Globalism. And I, I, one thing, this as an interactive juncture, who all shops at Whole Foods ever? Okay. How about when you go to Harris Teeter and they say, Regional produce right over here, right? I find myself sucked into that, and it's usually some truck farm from North Carolina, right? But why am I drawn to the thing that says grown in Virginia, grown in North Carolina on those carrots or the parsley or whatever? Why am I drawn to that as opposed to the one that doesn't have a place of origin labeling? Anybody? What? You want to support your community? One idea. Anybody else? Why are you drawn? Why are you drawn to it? It's ecological. Less footprint, less carbon footprint to transport it. What? Support the local economy. Help local growers. Anybody else? Fresher. It's fresher. Fresher produce. But that frozen salmon, I still want to know where it came from. You know, I mean, it's still, all frozen stuff's equally fresh. I still want to know, you know, where did it come from? Anybody else? Other ideas why you choose local produce? Healthy. Healthy? Familiar with the area. Now we're closing in on my point. We know what those North Carolina farmers are likely to do, Right? They, we identify more with local growers than we do if we don't know where it came from. We somehow in our heads believe the practices of the organic grower, who we know has to be pretty close by, right? Because it's going to perish if it doesn't, if they don't. We trust that sort of localism in our, in our produce selection, in our meat selection. That same sort of impulse as our world becomes closer and more interconnected thanks to this supercomputer we have in our hands every day, we all, regardless of where we are on a political spectrum or on the economic or, or, or education spectrum, we all still seek more localism, right? We, we want some localism that we can control. And that desire for localism above global, globalism, I think, was a big factor that drove that. Um, from the statistics you were saying, is there an ethnic breakout in those statistics? Well, it's, the Trump voter was disproportionately white. Every Republican that ever wins is going to be very disproportionately white. And in fact, early in the book, um, 
we go into a lot of the conventional wisdom that sort of led to, uh, I think, a lot of experts missing the election. Uh, the, the Republican National Committee's postmortem on, uh, on the Romney defeat, which was really, really long and really, really boring, by the way, uh, my former employer, um, basically the headline could have been summed up from a Karl Rove piece in the Wall Street Journal, which is, there aren't enough white Americans left to elect a Republican. Um, after the election, uh, Sean Trendy, uh, and then we cover this a good bit in the early part of the book, who is a statistician who's never worked for, he's a Republican statistician, but he's never worked for the party committees. He writes on real clear politics. He's not, like, doesn't work for campaigns. He's not has no institutional loyalty. He's right of center, but he has no institutional loyalty. After the 2012 election and this report came out, Sean started crunching the numbers and like, well, I don't know. I think Romney left a lot of white votes on the table. I think a lot of them didn't come out. And I think a lot of them who didn't come out were in upper Midwest. And so... That was kind of disregarded because Sean doesn't have a following in town and doesn't have in the industry. Um, but one person listened, uh, and that's and that's Donald Trump. Um, and I think that now that's now Donald Trump didn't create that, right? One person does not create political movements in a country of 300 million people. It just doesn't happen. People can get in front of a parade in America of 300 million people, uh, but it's not possible for a person to create it. And it's um, the the truth is not so much the fact that. Uh, those people didn't vote for Romney because, I mean, th these, their, their neighbors were all voting for Obama by and large, right? These are all places that Obama carried twice. Uh, and, and many of them had voted for Obama when turnout was higher in 2008. Uh, but, so I actually think race played a smaller role in it as, in as much as the ideology, as the Democrat Party has moved left, uh, there were a lot more people in the middle for Republicans. And here in Washington, in the super zips, in the RNC's own report, and people in my profession have very often described that as, oh yeah, well the way we have to fix it is we have to have uh, more millennials and more people of color and more, you know, that's more educated suburban women who we've been losing on social issues. That's the way the traditional Republican consultant class has thought of how we had to expand the electorate beyond what Romney got. Uh, but what that elections are, political dynamics are plate tectonics, right? The plates grind, the plates grind, the plates grind, plates grind. Nothing stays the same. And so as the, le as the Democratic brand has moved further and further left, it has made more and more people open in the middle to Republicans. And we had always thought, oh, these are going to be upscale suburbanites. That's who we got to go get. No, they weren't. Uh, it, it, was, it was largely people in very small places. Um, and if you, if you go back and look at the uh, at, at statistics on, on size, I think I, think I, think I have them here, um, uh, among... If you look at, uh, in counties under 50,000 people, uh, there are 2,000 of those. America has about 3,000 counties. I'm counting Alexandria as a county here for this purpose, cities count like that. We have about 3,000 counties uh, in the country, and about 2,000 of those are under 50,000, okay? Uh, Trump lost only 197 of those 297. Uh, meanwhile, if you go back to the last two elections, most Republican presidents lose 300-plus, right? So he's losing two-thirds of the number of counties, and I think I've got a stat here that will help me describe this quickly. For instance, in the average Trump margin minus the average Romney margin in counties, oh, that's not the right one. Never mind. Bear with me. We'll come back to that in a second. I'll find it in a minute. I, I was just wondering, what do you make of polls? It, do you do any um, thing in your book about polls? Because they yep. didn't seem to be very predictive of the outcome. Yep. Well, I'll, I will tell you this. We do. My firm is a polling firm and an ad firm. I'm not a pollster. I, I consume data for argument's sake. I don't. I don't create it. Uh, my partner does. 
um, there, when you see a public opinion poll, there are a couple of ways to read it. Uh, you have to learn what's the universe, what's the assumptions that went into the universe, right? And then what happened on the back end, right? Who is where relative to what? Now I'm going to walk through that step by step. So the first thing, most media polls make this mistake. They, they do all 18 plus, adults 18 plus, okay? I could care less what adults 18 plus think. I'm in the business of winning elections. Adults 18 plus don't vote. You know who votes? People who vote. So first off, I care about people who vote. You have to be registered, and you have to be somebody that votes fairly regularly or state an intention to vote for the first time. If you're not someone who has never voted before, is not registered before, doesn't state an intention to do so this time, no one in politics makes decisions off your opinions. That's just a fact. People in politics make decisions of people who vote uh, of the opinions. And so I often tell my, my clients that start with the people who might be in willing to be part of your 51% and look at what those people think. Like it maybe at 61%, maybe 71%, but whatever you think are willing to maybe be in your 51, look there. So number one is who's in a poll. And we look at a public poll, a press poll, and they're the ones that missed the presidential election the worst, okay? They all said 18 plus. Maybe they said registered voters, all right? Then the next thing they do is they, you have to set up your sample frame based on who demographically you think will be in that pool. So there is an assumption baked into every poll before they make the first phone call, okay? And some people believe that you structure you're the entire sample frame. You say, well, it's going to be 53% female. We've got to have 25% people under age, 20, age 30. Like They set up a lot of quotas going in that say, this is the racial breakdown, this is the gender breakdown, this is the age breakdown, and this is the geographic breakdown. Now make the calls, right? And our bucket for women under 25 in rural counties is this. Our bucket for Latino families in urban areas is this. Make the calls and fill up the buckets and then count them up, okay? So there are assumptions and decisions made before they make the first phone call, the first one. Now, as we get more polarized, particularly by age, that has a real effect on what comes out on the back end. Now, we've not always been this polarized by age, right? Fifteen years ago, senior citizens were a Democratic constituency. Today, if you're over 65 and you're Anglo, I can almost guarantee you're a Republican. And so it, I would be willing to bet a fair amount of money on it. So as a national, and I'd win more money than I'd lose, right? So, and if you're 19 years old, I, and I don't care what your gender or education level is, I got a pretty fair shot of you being a Democrat. And I also got a pretty fair shot of you not showing up to vote. Okay? So how many of those people I put in my pool and I quota into my pool drive what I'm going to get on the back end? Now, where did this manifest itself? Pennsylvania. Our, our firm, my partner, was polling in Pennsylvania the entire cycle. We never had Pennsylvania more than a three-point race either way. Never one time. We put our numbers out once. And some reporters would call me who are friends of mine and say, you guys are crazy. You're staking your whole reputation? CBS has it 10 points. CNN has it 12 points. Why do you say in Pennsylvania is a two-point race? And you know, we even, frankly, questioned ourselves, to tell you the truth. But we kept pulling it and kept getting the same thing. And in northeast Pennsylvania, anybody from Pennsylvania? Scranton, Wilkes-Barre area up there? We were pulling in 45 and 50-point margins for Trump. And that's why it was close. And, of course, you're like, that's, that's not possible. Like this, Joe Biden's from there. This is a, it's a Democratic area. Split at worst. But he was pulling in 45, 50-point margins. He ended up winning it by 35. So we were a little off. But, but that's why he was competitive statewide, right? I was in a focus group the first week of October. 
And I went back to the hotel at the Marriott, and Marriott's by airports in October are filled with political operatives. So if you're a real junkie, you can go sit in the airport Marriott bar about 10 o'clock, and like five people will come from a focus group somewhere, and especially if it's a state capital in a swing state. So I'm in, I'm in Columbus, Ohio. I sit in the bar, and I meet a guy who's another pollster. He lives here in Alexandria. And I, I said, we're sitting there having a drink, and he goes, huh. I said, what, Brian? What's up? And he goes, you pulled Pennsylvania lately? I go, yeah. We we're, were out last week, and he goes, turn it around to me. Trump by two. It's like the first week of October, two nights before the Billy Bush incident happened. And he's like, you believe it? I go, yeah, I believe it. We've been doing it since June, and it's been pretty consistent. And he goes, I believe it too. And so he didn't put his numbers out because he believed it, but all the public data didn't say that, right? And so he didn't want, he, he fell victim to the crowd effect. So not all, I guess my moral of this story is not all polling was off, okay? A public polling was off because they, they of assumptions that were made on the front end. Uh, and by the way, once you get that survey, then you get to the back end of the poll, then they decide, is this off? Is this right? And if they think it's too hot, one direction, is we call it pouring cold water on your survey, right? You come up with an alternate turnout scenario that you think might reflect a little bit different than what the voters are telling you and say, well, I think if turnout's a little younger and here's how I justify that based on historical trends, you mathematically weight the data to, what you, to that. You don't predispose the outcome, right? You don't say, okay, we're going to move at two points. You say this if it's if turnouts if it's not quite this old this is what it would be. So when you look at a survey on TV, you are looking at a set of assumptions before the poll and after the poll. And so you just have to keep that in mind as you consume it. And some people say, okay, well the answer to this is I need just to consume a lot more data and put it all on a map, right? My answer to tell you is don't don't look at bad data. Like there are some people that are really bad and you should just not look at them, right? But but it's it's a, it's a difficult thing to and polling is getting harder. Anybody have, who does not have a landline? Raise your hand if you do not have a landline in your house. Anybody? Okay. If you do not have a landline and you see a phone call from a number you don't expect, how many times do you take that phone call? Zero. Okay. You've just made polling really hard for me. Now you can block it. Yes. Okay. Now let's just say you're feeling kind. Who occasionally takes a strange phone number? Anybody? Okay. It's a strange phone number, and I say, hello, I'm from ARG Research Group, and I have a few questions. Oh, okay, she just got rid of me. Is there anybody who would still be on the phone with me after ARG? Okay, yes. Okay, really interested. Now, how long can I keep you on the phone once I've got you on the phone for ARG Research? Hours. <laughs> Hours. Okay. We have, some, we have some seriously weird people up here. Okay? Yeah. Okay. These people are twisted. Most people will stay on the phone with me about 15 minutes max on a cell phone. Max, okay? So that means, as, and of course, as that phone call goes on, they drop off. That's called, we call that an incidence rate. How many people pick up? How many people stay on? Incidence rates in polling are going through the floor. They are dropping like crazy, okay? That makes getting an accurate random sample really hard. And so it means that a lot of polls are just crap, okay? And so especially cheap polls, now, guess who takes cheap polls? The guys who have half the employees they used to have, right? They take the cheapest polls of all. And by the way, CNN, no one comes back the day after the election and goes, well, CNN didn't poll that right. I'm never watching CNN again, right? Doesn't happen. That happens to me. If we get the election wrong, someone says, oh, I'm never hiring them again. They were wrong. So the cheaper polls with no consequence tend to be the worst. But it's getting harder for everybody, okay? It's, everybody has a problem uh, with polling right now. Okay, I'm going to throw a few more stats at you just to start thinking and, 
since that seems to uh, be fun for us. Uh, newspapers who made an endorsement. Okay, this goes to Charles Murray's theory of the super zips, right? Newspapers who made an endorsement, because guess who runs newspapers? People in the super zips. Of all the newspapers who endorsed for president in 2012, how many do you think Mitt Romney got against Barack Obama? Percentage. Anybody guess? How many? 15%? Anybody else? How much? Get here. 46%. He almost split them in 2012 against the incumbent president of the United States. He almost split them. How many do you think Trump got? 3%. 3%. Okay. Donations from Silicon Valley. Another set of super zips, right? Ratio by which Silicon Valley donated to Hillary over Trump. 19 to 1. 19 to 1. Hollywood. For Hillary Clinton, 22 million. For Donald Trump, 290,000. That's a rounding error. Okay? Someone made a mistake worth $290,000, right? Okay. It didn't mean to hit click on that website. It was trying to get, trying to hit back, not click. So now, in the Republican nomination process, politicians love a front runner, right? Republicans typically really love a front runner. We coronate the front runner as soon as he wins the Iowa caucuses, usually, and stop. Let's have no dissent. Trump got exactly one Republican senator to endorse him the entire nomination fight. One, Jeff Sessions. One. He got out of all the Republican governors with a larger pool of governors than we've ever had in recorded history. Over 30 Republican governors, never been this many. He got exactly three. Three. Congressmen. We have 225, 235 congressmen. He got a grand total of 11. Now, this is as he's winning 40 primaries, right? The front runner who can't be stopped. The institution, just no institution, be it politics, be it the media, be it Hollywood, be it Silicon Valley, be it Wall Street, none of the super zips were with him. Now, who was? Um, I, I, there is a gap, a schism. The super zips tell you where the schism is going to go, right? And you'll see a lot in the press that it's a lot about, oh, it's educated people. Educated people don't like him. Uneducated people like him. And Trump even himself says, you know the famous remark, I love the poorly educated, right? Which we all looked at that and go, oh, God, why did he say that? There's a lot of people who goes, damn, he loves me, you know? So that's, that's, um, that is a, and, 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 and there's something to this, and it is, but by the way, it's not just whether you are educated. I'm going to burst the bubbles here. It's not whether you are educated. Among college graduates, small-town America, Donald Trump did just as well as he did with non-college graduates in small-town America. What matters is not what your education is, but what your neighbor's education is. And we are all subject to social pressure. If, if you, and that is a, a schism that's showing up more and more as we go through this, and we'll get to that with institutions. Okay, we go back to America's 3,000 counties. Remember that? 3,000 counties, county units, 1,500 that are the bottom in education level. Now, what I mean by education level is percentage of people who have a bachelor's degree in that area. The average for an American county is 29.8%, okay? It's creeping up every year. It gets a little higher. 29.8% according to the 2016 census. Trump did better than Romney in the bottom 1,500 in 1,450 counties, okay? In the bottom 1,500. In the top 100 counties, according to educational attainment, Trump did worse than Romney in 86 out of 100 counties. Now, of that 100, 11 out of the top 18, guess where they are? Washington, New York, 
San Francisco, L.A., Super Zips. All 11, Trump did worse. Nine out of the 11, he was double digits worse. And so, uh, hence my recent column that said Republican thinkers and doers and staffers need to self-deport from the Washington area, right? We're, we, we're, we have a lot of, a lot of bad peer pressure. Um, so there's some stats for fun. Um, where does this get us with, with how we view the world? Uh, Pew says that 58% of Hillary backers, Pew, Pew Research, not mine, uh, disrespect Trump backers. Don't think they could respect a person they knew who voted for Trump. Only 40% of Trump backers say the same about Hillary. Um, now, where does that leave us with institutions? And I'd like to move into that, that question next. You know, Michelle, you want to stop for any reason? Or? Okay, go. Okay. So where does that leave us with institutions? And I want to start with an institution that is not politics, okay? And, and that's made major decisions this year. What is the institution, in your mind, that has taken the biggest hit to its reputation in the last 12 months? Now, I know somebody's going to say the United States of America. Okay, next, what would you say? The church? We'll get to that. FBI? That's a pretty good one. What is, the institution? The FBI. The FBI, say the church. The National Football League. The National Football League. The National Football League jumped into a political sphere where it hadn't been, where the world is incredibly polarized, where we all only listen to people we agree with on Facebook and Twitter, right? And it took a position which said, half of you people, forget you, right? Culture, we're, all institutions and culture are dealing with this uh, right now. Um, these decisions did not have to be made, and I would like to sort of look into institutions, and then we'll, this will transition us to the church here in a moment, but I like to call it the death of overhead. This means we don't need overhead. We don't have to have overhead. We can go straight to the content provider. We don't have to have anyone filter it for us. We don't have to have anyone decide what we need. We get to decide what we need, right? So when I was a kid, my jeans every year were from Sears and Roebuck, Tough Skins. Remember that? You go to Sears, you want to buy jeans, guess what brands you can get? Anybody else remember Tough Skins? Your brand you can get tough skins. That's it, right? You want a tool from Sears? Guess what brand you can get? Craftsman, right? You want appliances, washer and dryer? What could you get? Kenmore, right? Sears decided this is what you're going to have, right? Now, Sears, think about what Sears blew. They blew it, right? They had stores all over America, even in the smallest of towns. They had a fleet of trucks. They had a network that delivered stuff to every town in America. They had warehouses. They had massive market share. And remember that catalog you got in December? The wish book, remember how, many, how long would you pour over that wish book and decide what you wanted for Christmas as a kid? They knew where we lived. They knew what we bought. Sears had a massive database of consumer behavior, and they had the infrastructure to get it to us. Okay? But something happened to Sears. Walmart. Walmart happened to Sears, right? Walmart decided they could beat them on logistics. They could beat them on quantity. They could beat them on purchasing power. Walmart would brand stuff for less. You get to pick the brand, we drive the price down. Right, that's the Walmart formula. Okay, after Walmart, Walmart also had distribution centers, trucks everywhere, stores in every American town. But what happened to Walmart? Amazon. Amazon has kicked Walmart. Now, Walmart could have been Amazon, because Amazon is nothing more than a collection of warehouses, trucks, purchasing power, individual customer info. Walmart. If Walmart starts a loyalty program in the 1980s and tracks all that you buy. As soon as the Internet's invented, Walmart is Amazon. They're one decision away from it. But Walmart still was operating under the theory that we're going to put what goes on the third shelf. That's up to us. We're going to negotiate what's on the third shelf, the second shelf, and the first shelf. It's up to us. Our executives Walmart. We know what's better. We don't, we're going to pick out what you buy as a customer. We're going to drive the price down. That's what you get. You get cheaper prices, more access. We decide. Right? Amazon says, we don't care where it comes from. We don't care what you pick. 
right? And as you pick things, we're going to show you more things like that, but it's you picking. Even the algorithm, much like the algorithm I talked about earlier on my news app, that algorithm is me picking on Amazon. And by the way, as I've learned more about publishing, I don't know if you heard about this book, The Great Revolt, but the going to Great Revolt, the problem is when you go on Amazon, it's going to show you five books, okay? When you walk into a bookstore right now, if you still can find one, how many titles can you see? Hundreds, right? Take 15 more steps into the store, you see hundreds more, and you are going to select it. Now, Amazon, you're still selecting it, but it's all based on what you bought before. Amazon says the bookshelf at Amazon's five thumbnails at the bottom of the screen, right? And so, for instance, I can tell you the other books it's going to recommend to you after you buy The Great Revolt, um, but it, Amazon says, you pick, you pick, but we, we're not going to fuss with giving you too many choices too fast, right? This is the, the dilemma we find ourselves in in our industry, industry, if you will, as, 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 a fa as people who are trying to evangelize the world. We need to think about other people, what are the struggles they've had. How about banking? I remember as a kid before ATMs were invented, on Friday my dad would get his paycheck, we'd go to the bank and cash the paycheck, right? Be a long line of cars, the drive through If you got there early, you'd park and walk in, go in the lobby. You got there before 5 o'clock, cash your check. And these banks built elaborate lobbies, and every bank competed to see who could have the most real estate, who could have the prettiest lobbies, who, you know, the, what kind of trinkets can they give the kids so that you'll come into the lobby and do business with them, right? Everybody remembers this. What happens next? Well, the banking app happened next, right? When's the last time you've been to the lobby of a bank? Take a picture of your check, you scan it in, you put it there, everything's direct deposit. So now your bank doesn't even have to have a physical location, right? Well, what about, what if you don't need a bank? What about PayPal? What about Venmo? What about Kickstarter? What about GoFundMe? Who says you even have to ever go to a bank to move money around? So this, this smartphone device and the fragmentation of society is changing every industry. So what about religion? I, w I would suggest that we are subject to this same cycle, right? We have the post-war era in America, which took a fragmented reality, in American culture and American commerce, and it consolidated it, right? We had a generation of GIs come home from the war. They were used to conformity. They'd been in the military. They were taught, this is the way you do things. This is how you do it. Move forward. These rules, these regulations, they moved to subdivisions, which were new, new creations after the war. Lived in houses that looked a lot like each other. Shopped in shopping centers that looked stores that looked a lot like each other. Age of conformity was on, right? And we sought conformity because we thought it meant excellence, right? Standardization meant excellence. And so the American corporate hierarchy profited off of that, can go ag aggregate things in, create national brands, right? But now we're in a world where national brands mean a lot less, right? Wh why do I care what national brand I'm buying? I want the coolest new brand that I discover from that Facebook ad that popped up just for me so I can buy it and tell people, oh, you got to believe this thing I bought, right? How many times have you done that? You bought something, you love it, you rush out and tell as many people as you possibly can, you would not believe this new thing I got. You've never heard of it before, Okay. That is an alien sentiment to 1950s America. I bought this great new thing. You've never heard of it. They said, I bought what you have, right? So that has a major impact for us as a church, and it's already happened. Uh, mainline denomination members, these stats are not surprising to you. 1972, 28% of Americans were mainline members. 10% went every week. Now that's 8% of America are members of the mainline church. 2.7% go every week. And that's including the fact that we're all going to fudge a little bit when we tell people how often we go to church on the phone. It's strangers, right? Okay? Mainline churches lose a million people a year, even as America's population grows by far more than that per year, right? We are not merely not keeping up with the growth. We are actually dying off. Uh, and I would argue that that sentiment is intricately, re intricately related to 
this whole cycle of fragmented America, conglomeration and centralization of America into brands, and then extinction as brands no longer mean anything. So David Haskell, there's some other people who have other theories. David Haskell says that uh, it's a theological difference, that conservative denominations are not dying as fast as mainline churches. Andrew Greeley, Kirk Hathaway says, no, it's really birth rates. Mormons and Baptists just have more babies than Methodists and Presbyterians, Episcopals. Maybe that's it, too. But I would argue it's even bigger than either of those two explanations. Uh, it's, it, I think you, who needs connectedness when you have Snapchat, right? Who, who, we're in the business of selling connectedness and meaning. Uh, and today we describe meaning by the fact that, you know, I have, here, I'm, I, have a, I have something to say, damn it. Right? That's how we convey meaning. We, we communicate our views, be they political or be they societal or be they on a cool new product I've found. We can go tell the world what our meaning is, and then other people who agree with us like it, share it, love it. You know, right? We get connectedness off this endorphin device we have. So why would we bother paying the overhead of the Virginia Annual Conference? Right? We don't even pay for cable. Right? Why would we pay for overhead enrichment at the Virginia Annual Conference? And this is not just casual Americans who are experiencing this. 60% of young people, that's people under the age of 30, who are raised in the church, say they've quit going. 60%. And this is, this is the home team, right? These are people who, who presumably were imprinted on this as young people. Four-fifths of Christians tell researchers, George Barna, who's a re religious researcher, that they're not deeply committed to their faith in their everyday life. And that's what they'll tell a stranger on the phone. 80%, 80%. Uh, so if 1950s America sought identity and comfort in brand and in creed, that's why they joined the Rotary Club. Anybody ever been to a Rotary Club? One of our groups in the book is called Rotary Reliables. First thing they do with the Rotary Club is they say the pledge, have a prayer, they stand up, they say the four-way test of the things we think, say, or do as Rotarians. It's a creed, right? It's no different than the liturgy we have in a church, right, where we, we say the Nicene Creed, we sing the doxology, we have a benediction, like... They have a flow and order. Rotary Club is built on that same, that sort of same need for liturgy. But that's 1950s America. We seek, they sought meaning in creed and in tribe and in comfort, comfort and, and identity. Our identity today, we seek it, what I would call, and this is going to really kick off our discussion, in virtue signaling grievance. I think that's where we seek, we, we seek our identity in stating how this is what I believe that's morally superior to what you believe. And it spans both sides of the political spectrum. That, but when we now have a device to broadcast that, all of us are TV stations. We all have a YouTube account. We all have a Twitter account. We publish a newspaper, and we, and we program a television station. All of us do. Just Some of us don't have many followers, but some of the real TV stations don't have many followers either. You know? So um, we, and I, if you want to reframe that, it is, I, I would say we are because we flame, right? Um, so what do we do next? And, and sort of what is, is, is it possible? Someone could argue that, Christian community, by nature, has conformity, right? And if we are at an age of conformity being dead, what's that say about us? You can't, you, we can't just be this fuzzy thing as Christian, in a Christian community without, and still be a community, right? We have to have some things we share and agree upon that are eternal and never, never changing. So if we're past conformity, what's next? How do we, where do we go forward? Uh, and so I'd, I'd like to stop there and throw that big old topic out and sort of, See where it's taken any of you immediately, and if anyone wants to attack it, and then move move on. Yeah, talk around your tables about that for a few minutes. If we're at the age of, con if we're at the end of conformity, what does that mean for the church? If church is conformity. Okay, let's. I'm going to gavel us back into order here, if that's possible. So we we didn't really come to an answer, but it was a few of us around the table that seemed to agree that. 
while we think the age of conformity to creedal institutions and, and, and systems of that sort has seemed to end or is, is definitely ending, there seems to be a new conformity to the herd of people who are like you. And so the question then is, can the church find enough people who are like everyone else in, already in the church to join up? And I suspect that that's going to be hard because a lot of people have already moved on and said, this isn't for me because I'm not like them enough. Or, right. or perhaps they don't like me enough to switch the ver verbiage around. And so there's this herd concept that we were playing with. And, and we, we talked about worldview and how if you go against the herd, you're ejected from it very rapidly in a way that feels... Like, you can never come back. Like, it's a complete and total ostracization, just a shunning of the unbeliever. And, uh, yeah, it, we didn't get much – we didn't have any conclusions, but that, those were the details we talked about. You know, it's funny. In, 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 in marketing and even in political marketing, people often will talk about, oh, we need a rebrand. Well, how do you rebrand in an age when brands don't matter? Where does that leave us? Um, one thing that I've said in, in talking to my friends at my, at my church outside these four walls They'll still yell at me and say, we still need to have fannies in the seats. My thing is, if there's not a mission that has them focused inside as well as outside those four walls, those fannies in the seats will be there twice a year, Christmas and Easter. Right. Christer. Anyone here? Anyone else want to, for an end of age of conformity? Come on. Come on. Come on. Who else? Everyone's suddenly got to go to the bathroom really bad. All right. Here we go. Okay. I think maybe the trend might be uh, virtual churches or churches online. That would appeal to the, very, to the youngest people because they're very familiar with the electronic part, and that will work very well for them. Great. That, that brings me to another point. I'm going to have to turn my mic off as I pass the feedback machine here. All right. That, that's a great question. That leads me into a question. That's the first question I have here gets me to that. Is this a delivery issue or is this a substance issue? Right? Now... This church would argue that, that, there, you, this, that there are delivery problems in the traditional model and you can overcome them, right? That's what you're trying to prove here, right? But is, 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 is it answer yes? Is it delivery issue or a substance issue? Yes. Right? Is that, is that it? Because uh, the church for, for the last 20 years has grappled with this as if it's a, it's a delivery issue, right? We had a rock and roll service. We're going to go Facebook Live. Like we're constantly looking for the next technology. And I think you're right. The technology is part of the answer, right? Because technology is part of our problem, right? That's how we got into this mess. So is a new technological revolution is part of the factor. So the technology has to be a part of our, our, our way out. Um, here's an, you raise another point here about is this, can we find like people who think like me, right? Uh, there's a guy named Rod Dreher. Anybody heard of Rod Dreher before? He writes on First Things a lot. Used to write a National Review. He, he wrote a book called The Benedict Option. You ever read that? Very good book. Uh, thought-provoking book in my mind. Rod says that we're back at the point of where the Benedictine community where we need a retreat to sort of, a, not, he won't go quite so far as to call it a monastic lifestyle, but to a point at which a group of Christians sort of seek shelter with each other and curate a lifestyle uh, that, that is foreign to the outside world around it, but must be preserved. Uh, and and, and uh, we interviewed Rod for the book. He didn't, he didn't make it in it, but we did interview him uh, for it, he's, he's a luminative, smart character. Um, I think the question we as Christians have to ask ourselves, though, is how does the Benedict option, and he, he addresses this as well, square with the Great Commission, right? How do we retreat to sort of, an, sort of a semi-monastic worldview where we're trying to cultivate something to, to preserve it for the future in a time capsule-like sort of form of Christianity without sort of answering the Great Commission that we go, go ye therefore and make disciples of all people? Um, 
fairly fairly unequivocal passage that, that we have as an instruction from Christ. So I, I think that's a question the church has to answer, right? Is if if if, if that's the answer is it is it just delivery? Twenty years would argue it's not just delivery, right? It's delivery is part of the problem, but it's not all the problem. Is it is it if can we just retreat and find people like us? Because that's my impulse, by the way. Like my my answer is we're surrounded. Let's let's huddle. You know, let's uh, so uh uh, we and a, a couple of folks here from our small group, and we 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 we're kind of our own huddle. I like that; it's good. But the problem with that is it is it doesn't. We can't live only in the huddle, in, in, at least in conform to the Great Commission, in my mind. But my last question, then, and this goes a little bit at delivery, I want to throw out for you: Can we do this under brand? You know, in a marketing terminology, when you have multiple brands uh, in an offering, you'd say, like for instance, Budweiser, right? Budweiser makes Michelob, right? They make Budweiser. They make Bud Light. They make, um, what is the beer, natural light, if it's really, really cheap. You know, it's, it's kind of that marketing slogan, the one to have when you're having more than one. You remember that? So, uh, because you're gonna, that's Schaefer. You're right, it was Schaefer. Couldn't get it past you. So, uh, anyway, that's, 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 but Budweiser concluded, as the microbrew revolution happened, they said, you know what? We can't fix this problem under brand, right? So they started creating microbrews that look like microbrews, but really were part of Budweiser, right? And Miller did Plank Road. I don't even remember what the Budweiser attempts were called. Okay, they have since decided, eh, those people are smart. They figured it out. It's not really, it's really us. They know it's us, right? And the microbrews kept eating their lunch, even as Sam Adams became a really large brewer, not a microbrew at all. So now what Budweiser's decided, they've gone and started buying microbrews, actual authentic ones, like Devil's Backbone in Lexington, Virginia, which I love. They've decided we can't do this under brand. We can't solve this problem under brand because brand is part of the problem. People who seek a craft beer are seeking something that is not a mass market beer, partly so they can tell their friends, hey, guess what? I got this new beer that you've never tried before, <laughs> right? We're back at that again, right? So can we solve this problem as a church with growth under brand? And Michelle's told me that you have that question coming up in a future pub theology. So I would leave that, that, that sort of with you. And the other question is, do, are we focused on the wrong brand? Is the real brand Christianity? Are we focused in a 1950s sense on Ford versus Chevy, right? And, and, and is, 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 the, is, the brand, is the brand we've started our loyalty to and we've tried to sort of solve our problems through, is that not really the right brand? There is peace at the table.